I served in the uh, House for six years. You know, uh, that's three different terms. And then was elected to a fourth, but moved over to the Senate under being chosen by a vacancy committee in January of 2019. I served almost two full years in the Senate. So what are your some of your main takeaways from your time um, in both of these places as it kind of relates to your representation of rural Colorado and, uh, you know, these districts and areas? Yeah, well, I've represented Northwest Colorado for that whole period. You know, the uh, House District, as you know, is Garfield, Moffat, and Rio Blanca counties. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are some unique challenges, um, quite a few unique challenges, since rural legislature, legislators are outnumbered in Denver. Uh, if you think about it, there's one, really one representative of Northwest Colorado, and there's about 20, you know, equivalents on the front range. So we're outnumbered, you know, dramatically by folks in the urban area in Denver. So the legislature passes or looks at over 600 bills every year, and every one of them may in some way affect, you know, our towns and, and uh, ranches, mines, gas wells. So you have to be really alert for any possible effects of that might be different for rural Colorado and pay attention. And that relates to healthcare, education, transportation, water, so many different issues that um, you can't, I have had to become an expert in a lot of very diverse issues uh, in order to represent rural Colorado. Having said that, I guess, you know, you named a number of issues, all of which um, you can go pretty in depth on, but what are your top priorities right now and uh, moving forward legislatively? Well, it relates to the fact that I'm the senior member of the Joint Budget Committee. I've been on that very influential committee for six years and going into my seventh budget. So that allows me to really, you know, to protect the interest of my district, which are unique as we discussed. So my biggest issue right now really is recovery, renewal from the uh, the economic disaster caused by the pandemic. So what I'm really paying a lot of attention to is jobs. You know, I, I want our economy to recover with jobs and not new taxes. And so I'm really doing everything I can to get us back to work. And us means, um, you know, Craig overcoming the uh transition to renewable energy at renewable energy it's steamboat and the other ski resorts getting our ski areas open on time it's thousands of small businesses who need to get back to work and open their doors have more clarity about the rules uh the safety rules for covid uh, but but at the same time you know, we need to do everything we can to balance 
and we can. We can balance protections from COVID against individual stores opening and getting retail business back to work. We cut $3.3 billion out of spending for the state, and that was all based on less income tax and sales tax. And the only way to recover our state's economy is to get people back to work. And we get people back to work, then we can pay for, you know, we can pay for our schools. We can pay for some of our roads, as you're well aware, living what you do. So, you know, only by getting people back to work. So that's my number one issue. And then I, my next issue really is the cost of health care. I've done a lot of work on getting, uh, reducing the actual cost of insurance and health care uh, across the board in rural Colorado, and, you know, I was a sponsor of the reinsurance bill, which actually reduced our rates on the individual market by 30%, and so I, I want to keep working in that arena, and then I've also been very uh, active in, you know, rural schools. Our, our rural schools don't get an even break compared to big urban districts, and so I, I have been very active in trying to change the school funding formula, you know, the way we do it, so that our rural schools get the resources they need. Because, you know, running a small, a relatively small school district, and that would apply certainly with Blanca to Meeker and, uh, and Langford districts, it's not the same thing as running one with, you know, tens of thousands of students. So I don't I think there's really not an awareness of the difference. Uh, when it comes to school funding. So I've been working hard on that and will continue to do so. And then, I, you know, I've worked a lot on transportation funding for rural roads as well. Uh, on the school thing, do you have any more specifics about that? I'm just curious about what you mean when you're talking about changing the way that, is it the way that they get funding, like how they receive revenue? Is it the amount that's allocated or what? what's the difference or what needs to be changed, I guess, for rural school districts? The school funding formula is a quite complicated process, and it has various factors involved, like the cost of living in a in a uh, in an area, uh, and then you know at-risk students, uh, students who you know English second language students. So a lot of these different factors go into it, and there's a size factor, and you know, that sometimes helps. In other words, if a school district is smaller, it's supposed to get more more resources per student. But in the end, these factors don't really let money follow the student. And if you sort of take that concept, you, you know, and then look at <clears throat> where students are uh, in, in terms of their, you know, their needs, in other words, reading or whatever. So you don't, it doesn't really let money follow the student. So if a student moves from Denver to Meeker, and you know, do you really transfer the money with the student? So it's it's built around the structure and the administration of a school district rather than actually funding students, you know, from what their needs are. I have been a sponsor along with Joyce. My wife is on the State Board of Education. We've been real advocates for reading. You know, how many students in a school district need special reading help to get them up to standards? Uh, and 
you know, only only 40 percent of our kids can read when they're in the third grade at third grade level. So that's an example of money focusing on the need on the student. So that's part of it. That's part of it. And then one of the things that has always disturbed me about school funding is there's a thing called local mill levy overrides. Yeah, what it really says is a district can run, you can run, and you have some of this in Meeker, and <clears throat> I don't recall the exact numbers, but you already have some of it. But a, a local school district can run a local ballot measure and raise money, add mill levies to the tax, and then they can use that for schools. But now, Lucas, you think about, you know, think about the concept of asset value per pupil, right? How much property value is there in that district? So if you're in Aspen, you can raise, you can put one mill on the tax and raise a whole bunch of money. If you're in, you know, Rangeley, not so much, you know, except there's oil and gas, which helps. <clears throat> but so you can raise money locally. Well, because of the disparity and the ability of districts to raise money, you, you end up with, you know, some districts able to, you know, raise a lot of money and some not much. And right now, you know, there's over a billion and a half dollars injected into the school system in the state coming from these mill levy overrides. But it's very, very badly distributed. So that's an inequity for rural districts that don't have high property values like downtown Denver or Aspen or whatever. So that's an issue I've worked a lot on is these mill levy overrides. But the basic formula, bottom line, just does not take into account. You, you think about a small business. You got an overhead. You got you to keep the building open, keep the heat on. Well, those overhead costs are different in small districts than they are in large districts. You know, you don't have the flexibility and the, you know, millions and millions of dollars to handle uh, <clears throat> variations in overhead and administration, specialists, and all those things. So I've worked, I, I've actually been successful in getting what we call a rural school bump. It's not a lot in the overall concept of schools, it makes 30, 30 million a year it was for 30 and 20. And then we divide that to just the rural schools. That's helped a lot because it's helped them keep the heat on, you know, and things like that. So, you know, I, that's outside the school formula. We just had to do that in order to compensate for those disparities in the formula, those, those inequities in the formula. So I guess just kind of to go back to the discussion of the recovery, uh, you mentioned getting people back to work. How do we uh, drive new job growth, maybe get certain jobs back, or what other general ideas do you have, especially to address the people who have already lost jobs? Well, it's a multi-dimensional problem. I actually think we are doing better than the state. I don't, we, we, we're still trying to get some good numbers on it, but I think Northwest Colorado is actually doing better than the rest of the state. What happened with tourism, it surprised everybody. Tourism was really strong uh, this summer, late, later in the summer, as people wanted to get out of Denver. A lot of them were you know, in-state travelers, but we also had a lot of uh, folks up from Texas and the South. We're leading in tourism. In some areas, we had more tourists than we had a year ago. So that's good. Now, where does that go in the ski season? We have to get those ski slopes open because, you know, tourism in the wintertime is 
and Steamboat and you know some of these other places is really dependent on the, the ski resorts. I think we're making great progress. I've been involved with other legislators in um, encouraging the state, set some rules, you know, get some consistency so those resorts can plan and get open. So that's part of it. And uh, Craig, you know, we actually were already in a really aggressive campaign working with local leaders there to look for new avenues of new employment, like people working from home who might have otherwise worked in Denver. And what's happening there is it's working with broadband. And actually, it's not many uh, houses for sale in Craig, and that's true in Meeker as well. I think that, you know, people moving out from Denver. So we're encouraging work from home. We're encouraging uh, new tourism venues in those towns. So I think we can do that. Of course, I keep fighting for taking care of folks transitioning from coal. And, but but I think that's working. You know, it's it's uh, we've got some time. And so we're working hard on those issues. I've worked with our Office of Economic Development. And actually, I'm on regional board for the El Pomar Foundation. We have a project underway to help Craig, uh, Meeker, and, um, and Steamboat, to some extent, plan for transition from coal. So that's a part of it. So it's it's not a there's no single solution to it. And then we look at the COVID rules and you know restaurants. Uh, you know we, we is it fifty percent? Could we tolerate more outside dining? Those kinds of issues. So you know the restaurant industry is was hit really hard. So looking at the rules for COVID and balancing those with the need to actually get back to work. I think. In general, the state uh, has leaned in heavily, and perhaps rightly so, in terms of COVID protections. But in rural Colorado, we have different. I've always said that we should consider regional differences and the necessary protections, and we should balance those with getting back to work. We, we literally sent kids home from school where there was no internet in your area. Where there might have been no internet, and there wasn't a COVID case within a hundred miles. So, is that proper? I mean, so that that's the kind of rationale, and and we are doing that. We've, I've lobbied hard, and worked with the state at my level to say, hey, let's let's look at rural Colorado differently sometimes, you know, because if you're a long way from the nearest live case, why should you have to close your doors? I'd like to touch in a little bit on that again. The current occupant of your former seat, Perry Will, um, yeah, he calls it you know an urban-dominated legislature, and you mentioned this earlier. So I guess, given your time there and experience working in that kind of environment, what do you see as an effective way to advocate for these rural differences and and considering the regional differences, specifically, you know, in that so to speak urban-dominated legislature? Well, that's an interesting question because the word rural does come up a lot. Governor Hickenlooper in his State of the Union speech three years ago used the word rural 23 times. I counted them. (laughs) And I I talked to him about it later and he said, I said, Governor, you used that word a lot. Now let's translate that into, you know, a real concern. Because, I mean, it's it's not unusual for um, certainly my side of the aisle 
to go to the podium or in a committee to talk about differences in rural. So what we have to do is we have to amplify that voice. We have to say it more often. We have to keep reminding people of it. And they're not as many of us. But the urban legislators on the surface are not unsympathetic to our needs, but it's their duty to keep. And, and, and you know, as I mentioned, because 600 bills, you know, in every one of them, you sort of have to say, hmm, what are the implications? What's in here? So I would say that's what you have to do. I mean, just population, you know, I mean, there's nothing really we can do about it because that's the way the Constitution reads, you know, the, the seats represent the people. So we just have to keep reminding them of you know, the, the Colorado beyond the Beltway, beyond the, the, the uh, interstates. And that, that's our job. It's a unique job. And uh, yeah, I don't even think of it so much as defending or fighting for. It's more like just making sure that our unique interests are represented. Uh, transportation. I mean, you know, we need to pave some roads out there where you drive every day, right? And but but if you drive around Denver on I-25, I-70, you can see that's where the billions. <laughs> need to be spent. Uh, so how do we make sure that, you know, a percentage of any new transportation budget and a fair percentage is spent paving Highway 13 or whatever, you know? I mean, so th that's probably, in water, you know, water is a constant fight with us. We want we want to keep water in our streams, right? We want to keep our fields irrigated. We've got some very senior water rights. The people in Denver do not have an appreciation, you know, and then they totally believe it's okay to pull the water under the mountains and grow the front range cities. Well, and they've got the money to do it. So, you know, that's an example where we constantly, constantly have to remind people that, First of all, we owe by the compact water down the river, but to keep our streams healthy and, you know, our farms going is not a high priority <laughs> for people who live in the cities. So transportation and water, probably two of the really big, and I talked about education. So, you know, a, a small, you know, I mean, we, we represent some districts, uh, 100 kids in the district, and Joyce and I together, I, I don't, think there's any, I don't think anything's that's quite that small answered, but all of the, you can see how each of those put a unique twist on a water bill or a transportation bill or an education bill. So it's, 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 first of all, you have to understand it. You know, I mean, I've been there eight years and I still find interesting things about rural Colorado that I want to make sure are taken care of. And it, it's, it's, it's different issues and different aspects of them is you as a western slope legislator are really required to understand that and that becomes your priority you know my one of my arguments to be reelected is that i do understand those issues and those priorities and i don't vote you know i vote for my district not for my party you know quite often and, and you have to do that uh, you you really have to remind your my Republican colleagues who I work with closely on almost all issues I have to get them on board. Fortunately, fortunately, Republican senators represent 
something like 85% of the land mass. So I have some calling, you know, my, my side of the aisle really is rural Colorado. And so that makes it easier for me to do that. Uh, you know, we're outnumbered, certainly more Democrats than Republicans in the Senate. But if I look to the rural representatives, they're Republicans, so, uh, by and large, almost all. So whether we're looking at the diversions or the future estimates about snowpack, runoff, we're looking at uh, less water in the rivers um, to work with. And we still, of course, have the compact, as you mentioned. We need the water for agriculture and and all these other industries um, and recreation and things like that. So... I guess, you know, in that context, what policies do you like for managing water in the future um, and trying to, I guess, ultimately prevent a call on the, the, the Colorado River for as long as possible? Um, what policies have you seen that, that you like and that you would uh, advocate for? Well, I was around when the water plan was produced a few years ago. One of the real strengths of our the political structure around water. I don't even like to use the word political, but our community involved structure is these eight basin realm tables, actually nine to count Denver. And so I, I think to really strengthen or at least to continue to support that infrastructure and they call it Colorado uh, River Water District based here in Glenwood leads to the policies I like. I really like this local involvement. So when we did the water plan, it wasn't some big top-down state plan. It actually started with these eight different basin roundtables. So I think from a policy perspective, continuing to reinforce those uh, and get local input about those needs is important. And here's why. You know, water, people talk about big reservoirs and, and thousands of acre feet of diversion and things like that. But there's also, there's the aspect of water that we can do something about is many local projects, you know, like there's every ditch company and every, you know, every river management area has a series of small projects that enhance the health of the streams, like the Colorado River. I represent the whole, you know, good bit of the Colorado River. In, in the state, uh, starting up in Granby, you know, in Grand Lake, coming all the way down. And I'm trying to fish as much of it as I can. But, but those, those projects on a local level might be $100,000, 50000 whatever, are really important. So I've tried to keep the funds there for the local basin roundtables to do grants and projects. Because that's where the real health of the streams comes in. It's it's a local issue. You know, you don't manage the health of the Colorado River as one big thing. You manage it as local, involved uh, irrigators, fishermen, you know, boaters, recreation, that sort of thing. So from a policy perspective, I want to keep those funded. Now, now here's a really big problem. 25% of severance taxes has gone to water to water projects that where the state puts out grants and we fund those local entities. That's drying up. You know, we are in fact, I mean, the state, I mean, a whole different issue. 
hurting. Our, our oil and gas revenues have been greatly diminished, both by cost and by regulation. So we have much less water flowing from severance taxes into the into water funding. So I've been an advocate. I, I've worked hard to get you know some substitute funding source into water. Now we have this gaming tax. I put 10 million from budget into it and last year. Lost that this this year because of the COVID uh, hit on our taxes. But you know, keeping local projects funded in the future, we've got to find a funding source. And this gambling tax is not going to pay for it. We have to find a funding source for the big projects, and meanwhile, keep the little projects uh, funded. Uh, and, and for me, you know, policy evolves around budget. For me, being on budget committee, you know, I, I, I think money is policy. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how to fund water. The oil and gas one is interesting because it kind of touches a lot of these areas that we've already talked about. So I think maybe the way I would approach a question about this would be to talk about, you know, you talked about transitioning with coal and gas and, you know, helping those workers uh, transition, um, helping to sort of generate other kinds of economic development in the areas that were impacted by coal. And then you've also talked about the impacts that severance taxes have on budgets. Uh, Rio Blanco County is seeing, is dealing with like $2.3 million budget cuts uh, because of decreases in property taxes from oil and gas. You talked about that as well. And this is kind of a trend that's going on. Uh, so I guess my question would be kind of around referencing the coal discussion is what do you see as the best approach or even just general ideas around the future of oil and gas? Should we be trying to bring it back to kind of levels that it was in some of these uh, boom times, like maybe especially around 2013. Do you think it's better to kind of let whatever happens happen and, and develop alternative sources? Is it a combination? I mean, do you have specific policies around that or what's your general take on uh, that? I guess especially from the, the perspective of how it impacts budgets, um, but also what we should be doing with those industries moving forward. I think that what's going to happen is going to happen. And rather than thinking that government can control it, we should be adapting to, to change. I mean, this is a national, really a global issue. And of course, like everything else, it has a number of layers. I think that the state has done about as much damage. Well, every time I think that they do more, but, you know, I think the, um, the, the Democrats, the ideologues on this issue have done a lot of damage to oil and gas through Senate Bill 181 and then certainly coal through 236. Uh, some of it well-intentioned environmental issues. We have in place a, a new oil and gas commission, which is proceeding to set rules around these uh, Senate bills of two years ago that will further decrease the willingness of the industry to invest in Colorado. We have at this point only one active drilling rig in Colorado. And, you know, 
few years ago, we had a lot more. So these wells went out in a few years, you know, they started, you probably know that they diminished in production. So there's almost nothing we can do at this point to, to change that dynamic because you know, there's a glut of gas. We really are mostly gas and separate out in Rangeley. And so there's no real, it, it's, it's an international market and a price issue as much as regulation. So, I mean, if we got the Jordan Cove and the pipeline, that would help uh, create an international market. But, but even then, it's not going to be a strong market because of, you know, international situations. So having said all that, we're on a course that we can't really, change. Certainly the state of Colorado has no willingness to change it and, and probably no ability to change the dynamics of the market. So I think we have to think that um, property taxes for Garfield, Moffitt, Rio Blanco counties, and more so Moffitt, Rio, uh, Garfield, and Rio Blanco, are going to be severely negatively impacted and have to start to plan for that. You know, I think working with the county commissioners, you know, I, I know they're all very much aware of the problem, working toward it. So not quite sure where we end up with property taxes from oil and gas. And Craig, a little bit different. They don't have a lot of oil and gas. And, you know, the coal industry has some time. We have a few years before we close the uh, you know, get down, although 2025 is the next big Shut down. So, and, and, and Craig has a plan. I, I don't think the state or even the national government ought to come in and tell people what they're going to do for their next job. But I, I'm pretty um, optimistic about Craig and Meeker looking for other things, uh, tourism, uh, all sorts of new uh, ideas. So, I think they, you know, ideas that come from inside the community or the way to go, I think the state can help with those through grants. Um, you know, I'm working with the O'Palmer Foundation nonprofit to, uh, to help, but the ideas have to come from the community. Maker, you know, Rio Blanca did a great job with getting internet in place, and that's already paying off, so I want to do that up in Craig as well. So, I don't know, that's a rambling thought process, but I think we've Rather than thinking we can change, we're not suddenly going to create a market for oil and gas or coal. So what we really have to do is, you know, driven from within the community, find ways to adapt. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned broadband. Is there anything else that you, I guess, broadband and tourism, was there anything else specifically about Craig's plan that you liked? Or is it just kind of the general idea of developing those sort of other uh, revenue sources? Now they have a, they have, and I've worked with them, they have a, eight things. They have an eight item list of specific ideas. And this, these are driven from within the community. It includes in, in beefing up the programs at the college. It includes building a paleontology museum. It includes transportation to over to steamboat for you know, workers who work over there. Uh, and, in, and one I think is really exciting because uh, I'm an engineer and techie is other uses of coal. You know, you can, there's actually a, 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 an idea of extracting rare earth metals from coal ash. So there's a lot going on in that uh, arena. I mean, I, 
I don't know, Maker just, I mean, they've all, he, I don't read it up, but Maker's always been strong to me. They're always doing things on their own, broadband and the ATV, you know, the off-road stuff. So it's a pretty exciting place. Plus, you've got a few billionaires who hopefully pay some taxes there. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or any other topics that you wanted to sort of touch on, you know, moving forward? And then also, if you want to share any info, I don't know if you're going to be going around the district or anything like that. Um, but even if you just shout out a website or whatever, that would be great too. Yeah, I mean, my website is pretty complete. I've been writing articles for uh, newspapers for seven years, and they're all on my site. And they're all indexed by subject. So, you know, my, my website is votebobrankin.com. And, you know, if you want to know what I think, it's no secret. It's all right there. So, uh, you know, I would encourage folks to, you know, if they want to know more, to go there. I have a couple of bills uh, that I worked on last year that I want to keep going. One of them is cost of care. I believe that we should tackle the fundamental underlying cost of health care rather than put more government band-aids on paying for it. So uh, Carl Hamlin and I disagree on that. We talked about it in debate the other day. I oppose the national popular vote and he supports it. So I think we both support, um, you know, like we don't really need to get into the Gallagher thing. It's too complex, but I, I support uh, repealing Gallagher. I've worked on that for years. I guess those are kind of the salient points. I, I, you know, the underlying issue in the Colorado legislature is it's out of balance. You know, it's one party domination. It works best when we can, you know, we have balance between the two parties. And, you know, if we have really dumb ideas, then the other party can can uh, negotiate that or kill it so uh, you know I've, I've, I've passed over 150 bills where I've been the prime sponsor one of the prime sponsors and I've been in the minority so you know I, I know how to work across the aisle and that's what western Colorado needs we do not need as good a guy as Carl might be we the Democrats do not need another vote in the let in this out of balance legislature what we do need is somebody that can fight for and defend Western Colorado based on years of experience and learning what those issues are. All right. That's, that's great. I think just real quick, one last thing, cause you just mentioned the cost addressing the cost of healthcare. So what, uh, what ways can we address the cost of healthcare? What are some, some ideas that you think work? So in Summit County, We've set up a, a local negotiation uh, process and we ran a bill to support that. That means that local entities negotiate with their local hospitals to get the cost down. Uh, we can work on tort reform. We can work on uh, technology for monitoring. The most important thing, and this has been done in other states, is this cost of care model. And that means that we have pharmacy providers, hospitals, we have insurance companies, the payers. What, what happens in this, they all, we all sit down 
and recognizing that the public is unhappy and that costs are out of control. And you set some goals and some targets. And, and you, know, you know, the entities agree on that. This is, this is free market transparency. So you, you set some goals for controlling or reducing healthcare, and then you widely advertise those to the public. And then you come back and continually monitor them. And, and it's heavily, we don't, have, we don't have good comprehensive data. So this, you set these goals and you intensely monitor uh, with, with really good data. So we set up a data entity in the state to, to collect how we're doing publicize that to the public. So pharmacy sets a goal, maybe on around a few good, a few popular drugs to drive them down. Hospitals set a few goals uh, that have to do with individual procedure reductions. Uh, insurance companies set some goals. Maybe they, they start to cover more monitoring. I mean, we see this every day, it's really growing. And we, we implement, um, and by the way, telemedicine kicks in. We've learned to do that during the COVID. So that's a huge, can be a huge cost saver. So you, 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 the entities who have to implement these things sit down together. Rather than, rather than having the state tell them what they can charge. I do not believe the state government is, is I don't believe they have the ability to pick prices and impose those on the providers you know that's cost control of prices that does not work that's what medicaid is by the way you may not be aware medicaid only pays about 60 percent of the actual cost and all of those costs get shifted to private insurance that's why private insurance is so expensive it's because the government doesn't pay the cost of what it demands be provided so rather than do more of that you know, I, I, I like this approach we've seen in other states where we actually try to get at why it costs so much and control those costs. You know, you both both reduce some costs, but also control the future growth of cost. So that's what cost of care is all about. It's controlling costs through the free market. And I have a bill. I had a bill last year ready to go, but it got subsumed by the schedule COVID. All right. Um, so I'm assuming that uh, you have some writings on that on your website as well, the discussion around healthcare and cost and stuff. Yes. And uh, uh, what's the website again? VoteByBrankin.com. All right. Well, for Colorado State Senate District 8, Senator Bob Rankin, thanks again for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lucas.